I hope Thanksgiving was fun. Get a chance to reunite some of us with people we haven't seen in months, maybe years. Reminds me of the orphans and widows, though, because they don't necessarily get to do that. Not with parents, spouses. I mean, I wonder where they went for Thanksgiving. Maybe some of you hosted some. When I talk about orphans and widows, you might think of James. James 1 at the end. It speaks of a pure and undefiled religion. And it mentions visiting orphans and widows in their distress. And I know that some of us may be missing loved ones even here today. And it can be hard when you realize that person is no longer going to visit you. During a holiday like this, uh, it, it's, it's weird when you realize that the person that you looked toward for leadership is now no longer your leader. And we here don't believe in speaking to the dead. And so, a lack of leadership can be devastating to families, schools, churches, corporations. But we didn't come here to talk about that. We came here to talk about Jesus. See, Jesus brings a twist to all kinds of nonsense and hurt and pain. Hebrews does a good job of talking about Jesus. It speaks of him as if he is superior. Superior to angels, the rules that you have to follow, the laws, the, the, the various things that that come with who it is that you do listen to. Jesus is more superior than all of them. Hebrews, though, also does a good job of talking about the rules. There's several references to Levitical practices, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Old Testament, the practices such as sacrificing animals, to pay for penalties, to get in a right relationship with God. It suggests that it might be that Hebrews is written prior to the 70 AD sack of the Levitical temple. The name Hebrews itself suggests that this book is, has a heavy emphasis on reaching the Hebrews. There are not many references to the Gentiles in this book. A group of people that Jesus came from. And we see the author 
speaking to a group of people that seem like they've been around for a while. A church. Hebrews 5, 12, the author speaks as if they ought to be teachers by now. And talks about how people are falling away from the faith in Hebrews 6. And so when we come to the end of this book, Hebrews 13, and we look at the benediction, we look at how the author wanted to leave this group. What is it that he wanted to tell them, to remind them at the very end? If you look at verse 17 in chapter 13, he's talking about leaders. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as though as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. He speaks of leaders, leadership. He asks for them to pray. He even urges them to do this and then concludes. If you don't know what it's like to be without a leader, maybe that's a good thing. Because leadership is needed. And my hope is that as we look at Jesus, the Supreme, the Great Shepherd. We will acknowledge him as the missing piece that we all needed. No matter if your family is here, you know your origin. Jesus is who you need to know. No matter how comfortable your life is, Jesus is who you need comfort from. No matter how wealthy you may be, you need to be wealthy toward God. And we will talk about Jesus today as we look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, and even verse 21. We'll look at one God's eternal covenant and God's eternal glory in these verses, and hopefully you'll be with me and you have your scriptures open because we will be flipping and learning about what's here. Look at verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, and he continues. We're speaking about God. Notice the qualification here. He's characterized as the God of peace will be important later on. This God of peace is the subject. And notice God and this peace 
And this peace is not merely when everything is good. It's been said before that peace is not the absence of war. Peace is something that you can have even in the midst of it. Your trials don't go away and then you have peace in this life. A loved one passes away. You lose a job. Your house burns. Your child is disobedient. You have the ability to still have peace. As a matter of fact, you're expected to have peace and demonstrate it. It's one of the virtues of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians. You're supposed to demonstrate peace. And the nature of the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians, is that you are expected to bear that fruit in all virtues. It's not like gifts. You are supposed to bear the fruit in all the virtues are supposed to show up. You can't have one virtue without the other. But here, the peace is describing God. Romans 15.33 talks about God in the, as a God of peace as well. Romans 15.33, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Sounds like a benediction as well. Somehow peace is good for describing God and reminding you that you need to be in a peaceful relationship with God. Is God of peace. That's where you'll find it. You'll find that peace with God. Paul even goes on to talk in somewhere other, other places in Philippians, where he says, the things you learn, Philippians 4, verse 9, and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So not only do we see the author of Hebrews talking about the God of peace, we see another passage in the New Testament where that God of peace can be with you. And my recommendation is that you desire that God of peace. I don't think I'm the only one who's going through some hard times, if you will. Peace is very welcomed in my life. This God of peace is not someone who's mentioned without a context. And notice here, now the God of peace. And then it goes on to talk about something that he did. Notice. Who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. What does peace have to do with death? you understand the great shepherd that was brought up from the dead, you might make the connection. Notice here, God is the one who brought him up. The word here came in other places like Luke 4 verse 5 referred to leading up. It doesn't necessarily have to have some end result, a destination, but it does tell you where you were brought up from, where you came from. In Hebrews, Brought up from the dead. Led up from this place where people, the immaterial you, have been separated from the material you. That's death. That's a separation. It does not mean that you cease to exist.
And so even Jesus then died. There was a separation in that regard. Brought up from where other dead people go. You can call it Sheol if you want, Hades, whatever, uh, and some general reference to the, the underworld. Um, here we say, and we look at the fact that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. God of peace brought up from the dead a shepherd. This is not the only place that God is raising Jesus from the dead. Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. This is an important piece. As a matter of fact, when people talk about the gospel, they sometimes may be tempted to leave out the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection is where we see that Jesus defeated death. And so the hope is that Jesus defeated death, he resurrected, so we will too. We put our faith in him, we live according to how he wants us to, we, we say, hey, you know, I, truly I believe in you, God, uh, Lord, you are my Lord and Savior, ah, I'm dead, but I'm gonna come back to life, da, da, da. resurrection, yes, I knew it. Resurrection is a beautiful thing. It's a needed thing. Because 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that there there's, are consequences if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. If there's no resurrection, yes, but then there are also consequences if Jesus didn't resurrect. He'd still be dead under the power of death. We'd still be in our sins under the power of sin. Devastation if Jesus doesn't raise Good news, the Father, God, God raised him up. Now it's important to note that uh, when, when you put all your theology together, your systematic theology, that, the, that God the Father is not the only one limited to the one who just raised him up. Jesus had the authority and the ability to raise himself up. So it's important to recognize that he says, I am the resurrection. He says that he is the, the great shepherd and he has the authority to raise himself up. So it's not that the fact that Jesus was, was powerless. It's just that here, the emphasis is on the God of peace raising him up, bringing him up. That's just what the passage is referring to. So now this God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. By now, maybe you picked it up. This is an interesting reference to some Old Testament passage. The shepherd. The shepherd is the one who's supposed to take care of the sheep, has responsibility to feeding, protecting, guiding, leading. There are under shepherds, if you will, as well, that we speak of, we usually call them pastors. It's the same word for pastor that you've seen in Hebrews, I'm sorry, in, in Ephesians 4.11. It's the same word, shepherd. The person who's supposed to take care of the flock. It's just a local one in the flesh. We can see him, we hear him. 
we speak to him. Sometimes we go to counsel with him. This is the person who's supposed to be shepherd, or should say sheep-minded because he's Christ-minded. Christ as the great shepherd is an interesting type. It's a, there's a connection here. And if you will, I want to, I want to kind of just talk you through this. If you want, you can turn to, to Isaiah 63. Isaiah chapter 63. You'll get a sense of what's going on here. Isaiah chapter 63. And I want to bring up Isaiah 63 verse 11 as a way to connect what's going on here to this Old Testament passage. Isaiah chapter 63. We see references to how good God is. Uh, even look at, look at verse seven. Look, look at verse seven real quick. I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. Look at all these ways that we can identify our God. Compassionate, gracious, merciful. This is the Old Testament God, the same God who's in the New Testament. Look at the next verse, verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people's sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. By the way, when the Old Testament references God as savior and when we reference Jesus as savior, please don't take that lightly. The Old Testament does this for a reason because God is savior. Jesus is not just merely some savior because he just died. He's fully God. Oh, let's get back. Let's, Isaiah 63 verse 9, we, we see a, a, a reference to some affliction here. Uh, the fact that God is still loving and merciful. Uh, but verse 10, there was a problem, but they rebelled they, and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to, their, to become their enemy. He fought against them. And then verse 11, notice what happened. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, where he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock. Where is he? Where is he? Notice, during the time of Moses, God brought his people out of the sea, the same sea that Moses had, and they split. And when they came out from among the sea, there are some people among the group of Israel, shepherds. And during that time, shepherding was a thing. People actually took care of sheep, took care of this livestock. And so when, they, when you see these, these individuals emerge from the sea onto dry land, among the group were shepherds. And 
And Hebrews uses that image to show Jesus as a type, as like the shepherd being brought up out of the sea, in this case being brought up from the dead. But he's not just any shepherd, he's the great one. As shepherds emerge from the sea during the time of Moses, Jesus emerged out of death, being brought up by God, the God of peace. In the midst of the war, the, the, the hardship, the slavery that the people were, in, were enduring during this time. Jesus then, it's like those shepherds being brought up, but he's not. Being the great one, being brought up from among the dead, from death. Uh, what about Jesus as shepherd? What is that about? Now, there, there's a type there. There's, okay, Jesus being brought up from from the dead, like, he, like those shepherds were coming from among the sea. That's great and all. But when was Jesus a shepherd? Hmm. Well, there, there are references to Jesus as a shepherd. Jesus talks about himself as a shepherd, for example, in John chapter 10. If you would, just go in there. Maybe you don't believe me. John chapter 10, you just need to, you need to see it for yourself. John chapter 10. Go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. John chapter 10, we'll start at verse 14. Jesus says, I am the what? The good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me. Uh, that's a good shepherd right there. I know who belongs to me, and they know that I am theirs. Look at verse 15. Let's get some more context, though. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I laid down my life for the sheep. Some of you may like your dogs and your cats. That's fine. I'm just I'm, I'm saying that here is a little different. The sheep. I'm gonna make some good money off of that sheep. You gonna die for it? Verse 16, I have other sheep which not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. I love that. Because not just some Jews, which is the main audience, we have people who are outside of that realm, who don't have that same heritage. What was verse 18? No one has taken it away from me. 
someone's life. But I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So Jesus not only has authority to take up his own life, he has a relationship with his sheep. It's important to note, though, that without a shepherd, you might feel a certain way. Uh, when Jesus, according to Matthew 9, he was looking around, and, uh, the way he saw it uh, in verse 36, Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. It is normal to feel distressed, dispirited, sometimes we call it depressed, without a shepherd, without the, the person who's protecting us, guiding us, the, the father who abandoned us, the father who died, the person who was supposed to be there in case we had questions and we needed answers, the person who had figured things out, the person who was naturally the one I would go to because they are part of my family. There's a connection that they can't even sever. I shared DNA with this guy. And it's hard to think, well maybe it's easy to think you're okay without a shepherd, but no, stop. It is, it is different when you have somebody who cares about the people compared to the money and the property and the assets. And they don't see the sheep, the people as the asset, as the reason why we're even here. We serve God and we can do so as we serve his flock. Let's go back to Hebrews. This is a great shepherd. Hopefully you understand how good and how great the shepherd is. He is the one who is great in authority. He is the one who is great uh, with this sacrifice, this, this, this resurrection. He is great. And notice, through the blood of the eternal covenant, Now, when I think about this eternal covenant, I think about Exodus. God in Exodus 19 through 24, they're out Sinai having a conversation. There are aspects of covenant being drawn up. And in Exodus 24, you see Moses uh, comes to, the, to Mount Sinai and he recounts to the people all the words that the Lord had been talking about. And Moses, we see young men coming from among the sons of Israel and they offer burnt offerings and sacrifice young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, in verse eight, this is Exodus 24, verse eight, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made. 
with you in accordance with all these words. Peace offerings to the God of peace. Establishing a covenant, a blood covenant that God made. You know, Hebrews 9 talks about how important the covenant is, even the blood. So let's go back to Hebrews, but let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verse 15 real quick. No, sorry, verse 14. Talking about bulls and goats uh, and their blood. And in verse 14, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? One of the significant pieces and things that you can take away and do something with when it comes to the blood of this, this eternal covenant is to serve the living God. As if you're alive and not just dead. Use your life and do what he tells you to do. Obey. The same thing that your parents wished that you would do when you were a kid, same thing I wish that my kids will do right now. Obey. Oh, man. I don't know if this is... I don't know if this... I know I'm not the only parent here that wishes their, their kid, I'm in it. That's right, why? I'm in it. I'm in it. My kids are, yeah, my kids are. That's right. Okay. I had to remember that. Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of it. Um, look at verse 15 for me. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. And so, some of us know what it looks like to get an inheritance. Your parents have passed away. They say, I'm going to leave you this thing in the will or trust. And you say, thank you, as you're crying. Uh, you said, okay, well, this, man, they get, leave me all these things. And then you realize they have creditors. And then you have to pay all these people. And then at the end of the day, you got a little bit of thing. This one is eternal, though. Alas. Verse 16. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. So, somebody has to die. Notice verse 17. For a covenant is only valid when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. And so we see that there is an agreement that's made. That's why we have a covenant. But notice, the person, the individual who establishes the covenant must die. That's all it speaks as if it's a will. Uh, okay, uh, a will, uh, when you, before you die, before you, before you die, you're supposed to write something that's supposed to be of some type of legal, you know, jurisdiction 
And then you say, I'm, duh, 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 you get this, you get this, you take care of this, you're gonna be responsible for this, this and the third, whatever. If you have property, you might want to consider a trust. I'm not your lawyer. But when you do the will, you don't get the stuff until you die. You know, nobody gets the stuff until you die. Nobody gets the stuff until you die. And so when God established a covenant, guess who has to die? And so now we look to Jesus. We say, wait, Jesus, okay, he's fully God because he was there. He was there when the covenant was established. He has to be fully God because he's the only one I know who died, but he's the one who was able to die because he became a man. Now he's mortal. Let me just make it clear a little bit more. Jesus being fully God is able to not only take credit for establishing the covenant, but he's fully man so that he's able to be mortal and die. And so you don't get the eternal inheritance without the death of the one who established the covenant. So you have to believe in the deity and humanity of Jesus, denying both. Leaves you with nothing, nothing of value. And so the covenant is important because we need to see that God establishing an agreement is not only able to keep it, but willing. Come back to Hebrews 13. Notice verse 20 again. Just in case you were fact-checking and say, well, it doesn't say anything about the shepherd. We didn't read anything about the shepherd, who the shepherd is. Well, it says even Jesus... Our Lord, this is the shepherd we're talking about. This is the one who shed his blood. You can't escape that. He gets the credit for that. When I think about covenant, it's like a promise. I think about pensions. I don't know if you have one of those, but a pension is supposed to be like a promise. And somebody is promising, hey, when you retire, I'm going to promise you this amount. So when uh, my family member retired, it was good. And it took just a bankruptcy. When it happens and you see it and it hits. It's, when it just took a bankruptcy for them to, oh, we're only going to give you this now. Yeah, but what happened to the promise? You promised me. Yeah, sorry. Some of you trust your jobs like you should be trusting God. You know those pensions don't even cover all of what you're supposed to need in retirement. My pension is only gonna give me 55 to 60% of what I'm making. I know that. I have to find some other source of income to make up for that. But we all, we all, we all have a policy with God. An, an inheritance policy because he made an agreement with us. 
that in faith, we get to be included among the sheep. And we get to be blessed eternally because he established an agreement and he's faithful. And this is important for him being faithful and not just merely us trying to be faithful in our little meeble, you know, feeble attempts. Uh, he's actually, he has credibility. He doesn't go bankrupt. The creator is gonna remain the creator, powerful, mighty, all-knowing, all in all places, having authority. He's gonna remain that way. Yesterday, today, tomorrow, forevermore, eternal covenant, eternal, eternal is eternal. Eternal is eternal, eternal. Things that we amass in this earth, we gotta leave it. Might as well embrace what's eternal. This might be a good time for me to just say, if you don't at this time believe in Jesus yet, um, Jesus is the one who died and resurrected so that those who put their faith in him will not perish in hell forever eternally, but instead have eternal life, have eternal inheritance. Uh, we get uh, the, the people who did us wrong, they won't be doing us wrong anymore. Um, they, they, it, won't, it, won't, it will be better. Let's go to verse 21. Because not only should we look at this eternal covenant, but let's look at the eternal glory. Verse 21, equip you. Notice the connection still. Uh, it's the God of peace who's supposed to equip. Remember, he's the subject. Equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, same Jesus we were talking about, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was prophesied to come and did come. He died, he was buried, he resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and he will come back again one day. That's, a, that's the Jesus talking about. To whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. Now, the God of peace equip you. This idea of equipping, uh, we usually refer to this idea of putting put together, fit together. And other places, is translated as being made complete or restored or prepared. You are supposed to be made complete, able to do things. You're fit together in working order. You are able to accomplish things when you're equipped. Galatians 6, 1 uses the word like this. It says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, even one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Second Corinthians, Paul says, Second Corinthians 13, verse 11. This is towards the end of that book. Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Here, the context suggests we are supposed to be equipped, be fit together, put, made useful even, complete in every good thing. 
That which is good is upright. It's honorable. It's acceptable to God. And we understand what is good because we understand who God is. Uh, let me just take a moment. Uh, some people refer to the problem of evil sometimes, and they think that uh, God shouldn't exist because there's evil in the world. But the problem that, uh, that comes with that is, is understanding that there's evil means that you have to understand that this is evil and something else has to be good. And if you know that there's an evil and a good, that means that there has to be a standard by which you can judge and decipher between the evil and the good. But who created the standard? The one who is good. And not only did he write law to establish these things, he put it in our hearts, Romans 2. We know, we have, a, we have a, a sense about what is good, what's not, and we end up coming defiled in our, in our ability to decipher according to Titus, and, and we, we, we mess that up. Yeah, we're supposed to be equipped in every good thing. Wherever there is, wherever there is to do good, however there is to do good, we can do that. But notice what it says, in every good thing to what? To do his will. God has a desire. He has a wish. He wants something. And he's able to will these things to perfection so that there's nothing that's going to escape his desire. That's the beauty of him being God and in control and being sovereign. That he gets to dictate things and by his sovereign will, even his preferred will, he gets his way. He has a desired will and when we understand what he wants, we should be on track, ready to serve, and ready to accomplish that so that he does that. He gets his way. That's what it looks like for us to serve him. We need God to get his way. But in order to do that, God is doing work in us. That's why it says he's, he's working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So it's not just us doing good things for him. He has to work in us for that to happen. And notice who's involved. Through Jesus Christ. We need Jesus. For the work to work, we need Jesus. Uh, Paul refers to work in Ephesians 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we are his workmanship. We are to be on display as if God is working on us. People should be able to see us and say, oh, God is working on you. Yes, he is. And here, we're, we've been, we're workmanship created this is this part of our purpose in Christ Jesus. Notice the agency of Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God is purpose for us to fulfill his desire. And that is the best way to live. That's my argument. Working to do God's will is the best way to live. He is equipping us 
and we should be implementing all we can so that he gets his way. And God gets the glory forever and ever. Remember, God is the subject here. He always has been. So God should get the glory. Jesus, in Matthew 11, uh, Matthew 11, verses 25 to 27, we see some words from Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty-five says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Notice how he speaks. Lord of heaven and earth. Sound like a song. That you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. There's a, a, a dynamic between the Father and Son. The Lord, the Son, is praising the Father in heaven ascribing to him his place of value and glory. And that is what we should be doing with our lives. Amen. I mean, that's, that's, that's the end of the verse. That's what I'm saying. The, the end of the verse says amen. Uh, the end of the verse says amen. Uh, we typically say amen because, you know, the ending, hey, yeah, amen. We're done. We're done praying. I don't want to wake up. Um, uh, here. Um, he, just, he concludes with it just a truly, truly, truly. This, that's, that's it. Uh, I, I wish, I, I do wish uh, parents would get the honor that they are supposed to get. Uh, the, the scripture talk about how we are supposed to honor our mother and father. Um, I feel bad for parents because. You know, parents don't really get that as they could sometimes. Uh, my understanding is that I'm on a, uh, I'm, I'm looking out for several years, maybe decades, before they even talk to me, like, on a regular basis. Uh, uh, there's a stat that I saw. Uh, most of, uh, I think it was like, it was something like 80%. Like, majority of the conversation you're going to have with your kids happen while they're at home. Prior to 18, you've, you've, you've over, they still have over half of their life left to live, God willing. But well over half of all the conversations you will have, have, have been passed by by the time they're 18. How are you going to honor your parents if you barely talk to them anymore? That's interesting. I just want to leave that with you. Um, uh, the, the honoring of, of the parents is, is, a, is a thing. But the honoring of God is an is a, is a expectation, should be a demand, a priority, uh, something we pray for, something that we go and get, something that we demonstrate it, Something we put on, which this is the, the glory of God, be given to him today because of me.
It should be something that we all decide that he's going to get. When will he get it from you? Today? Tomorrow? Next week? Next month? You have to figure this out. Because he deserves it. With an eternal covenant and eternal glory, you should be on your way to worshiping God on a regular basis, even when you leave here. Because he deserves it. He deserves it. Let's pray. Lord, you've been good. You deserve so much more than what we give you by just showing up, by just giving some money, by just giving our ear. We, we, we need to give our, our, our family, our kids, our possessions, our wealth, uh, our, our activity, our jobs. We need to give everything to you because you deserve it. We need to acknowledge you for who you truly are. May we be faithful with the little things that we do have, with the little glory that we give you. May you see it fit that we give you more. May we be responsible with the glory that we, we have the ability to give you. You are faithful. You promise us things, some wonderful things that we can't get anywhere else. We thank you for Christ, the Messiah, the one who we put our faith in. And for us, Lord, if there is anyone here who has not put their faith in Jesus, may that be the case today, that they will understand that Jesus being fully God and man died for our sins and resurrected so that we can put our faith in Jesus, turning from the very sins that he died for and have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we can do that by talking to you, confessing that we need you because we are sinners at odds with you and we need peace. We need you, the God of peace. We thank you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.